Hi everyone. I want to welcome you to this season one, episode 33 of Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. When I first envisioned this weekly project, I had no idea the range of authors we'd be able to present for our listeners. The participation by writers from every genre has been fantastic. We've been able to bring you masters of true crime, thrillers, literature, romantic mysteries, steampunk, sci-fi, memoirs, and young adult. And to fill out the month of August, on the 19th we'll interview author Mike Rubin, The Cotton Crest Curse, and Cashed Out. And on that day, we'll also have a reading of the short story, The Right Choice, by yours truly, Donna Carrick, from the anthology 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing 2017. On August 26th, we'll interview Michelle Cox, author of A Girl Like You and A Ring of Truth. And we'll also have a reading of the short story Family Recipe by Catherine Astolfo from Starship Goodwords, Carrick Publishing, 2012. Today, though, we're truly delighted to introduce you to a well-established author of Cozies for lovers of modern-day Murder, She Wrote. Our interview this week will be with Edith Maxwell, the McCavity and Agatha-nominated author of the Quaker Midwife Mysteries, County Store, Local Foods, and other mystery series. For our readers on the run, today's short story will be the Peace of Mind Thief, from Five Scoops as an Addiction by Alec Carrick, Carrick Publishing. But first, some housekeeping. Last week, we featured a fantastic interview with my good friend and fellow author and editor, Ed Pivawarczyk. However, I'm afraid I mispronounced his name, and I apologize for that. If you're looking to connect with Ed, you can find him at the maydamsofmayhem.com website, or on Facebook as Ed Pivowarczyk, and that is spelled P-I-W-O-W-A-R-C-Z for Zebra Y-K. Also, we're about to unveil a new Dead to Rights icon, so please stay tuned for that and don't lose track of us as a result of the new look. We'll keep the trademark noose and the quill pen for Dead to Rights, but we felt it was important to keep my photo current so you'll know who it is you're engaging with. One of the tips Alec and I always try to impress on new authors is that when you're reaching out, it's imperative to be yourself. People usually won't know your work, and they're rushed. For the most part, they don't have time to explore into unknown literature, and they don't want to take the chance. Media is coming at them from every direction. So, when you dive into online forums, keep it simple. Avoid representing yourself with icons of cat images or flowers or things that don't truly represent who you are. Understandably, some of you may have religious beliefs that prohibit you from posting images of your own face. In those cases, your icon should at least be an image or text that truly represents what it is you hope to offer your readers. Whether you're posting a true photo, 
a throwback image or a current version, some combination of text and image that expresses yourself and your work, do your best to keep it real. In my opinion, readers will thank you for it. They want to get to know their favorite authors and their new authors. This is a small thing, but it's a gift you can give the world, the gift of yourself. And now, stay with us for our outstanding interview with McCavity and Agatha-nominated author of the Quaker Midwife Mysteries, Country Store, Local Foods, and other mystery series, Edith Maxwell. Constructing fictional worlds rich with passion, intrigue, and the true mystery of human behavior is what makes Edith happiest. In 2013, she left high tech to write mystery fiction full-time and is now living her dream. Edith is active in Sisters in Crime, serving as the president of the New England chapter and is a member of Mystery Writers of America. She is also a longtime member of the Society of Friends, Quaker, and the recent past clerk of Amesbury Friends Meeting. Her short story was featured in the National Endowment for the Arts 50th Anniversary Celebration. Good morning, Edith, and welcome to Dead to Rights. This is Donna Carrick. How are you today? Good morning, Donna. I'm just fine. Thank you. How are you? Good. I'm glad to have you on the show. And it's um, we're actually talking on Easter weekend, even though the, the um, episode will air in August. So happy Easter to you. Thank you, and to you. Thanks. Now, I wanted to talk to you about your mystery series. It looks like you've got... Uh, You've got quite a bit on the go. Your uh, second Quaker midwife mystery series uh, series book, Called to Justice, won the Agatha Award for Best Mystery. Is that right? Um, actually, it's nominated for an Agatha Award for Best Historical Mystery. Oh, excellent. And I will learn at the end of April whether it won or not. But That's very exciting. It's one of five nominated. That is very exciting. We've got our award series here in Canada coming up soon, and um, actually the shortlist uh, award events are in April, so that's pretty exciting. Um, yes. That's terrific. What can you tell us about that Quaker mystery series? Um, it's set in the same town where I live, here in Amesbury, Massachusetts, up in the northeast corner of the state, um, in the late 1880s. And... Um, I have an independent Quaker midwife who's in her 20s, Rose Carroll, <clears throat> and um, she travels about town seeing pregnant clients and helping women with their births, um, but that enables her to be a great amateur sleuth because she also hears secrets and goes places the detectives could never go, for example, women's bedchambers. Um, and she's a Quaker, so she's already a little bit outside the norm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, the the second the third book turning the tide um, releases next week, and um, I'm very excited about that. It has a women's suffrage theme. Uh, women turn out on election day in 1888, presidential election day, with their placards about giving the women the vote. Um, so it's it's a I'm also a Quaker, and it's a series that's very close to my heart. Oh, that's really interesting. That is fascinating. What are the three titles? I know the one coming up is Turning the Tide. The, the new one is Turning the Tide. The first one was Delivering the Truth. And the 2019 book is Charity's Burden. 
Charity's Burden. Okay. And will that be the and fourth I, in the series? That will be the fourth. And okay. I have at least one more under contract. So far, I have one more under contract. That is terrific. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for yeah. telling us about that. And where can where can this series of books be bought? Anywhere books are sold. I ah. mean, they're on they're at Barnes & Noble. They're at Amazon. They're, you know, you can order them from your local independent bookstore. Um, they're all available in ebook format as well as print. Excellent. Now and you've got a, you've got another print, series called uh, the version of the first two books so far. Sorry. I'm sorry. What'd you say? What was that? I just didn't hear the last thing you asked me. Is it? Oh, I was about to ask you about your country store mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, as Maddie um, Day, Edith writes wildly popular. I write them as Maddie Day. Yes. Okay. And those are with Kensington Publishing. Is that right? Kensington Publishing. That's right. The Quaker Midwife mysteries are with Midnight Inc which is a division of Llewellyn in Minnesota. But Kensington is a, it's, it's the smallest of the big New York publishers, and it's family-owned. Okay. Um, and they've been doing a lot with Cozy Mysteries. So, so the Country Store Mysteries take place in a country store breakfast and lunch restaurant um, owned by Robbie Jordan, who's a transplanted Californian, as am I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, uh, it's a very popular series. She... You know, she serves breakfast and lunch to, to customers and sells uh, vintage cookware and uh, manages to get involved in murder after murder. Um, but she's got her cast of friends and relatives. She has her Aunt Adele there and uh, her friend Phil and her friend Lou and uh, kind of a quirky police lieutenant also, Buck Bird, who, who has a lot of very amusing Southern mannerisms in his speech. Okay. Um, and are these set yeah. in Massachusetts as well? These are what? Are these also set in Massachusetts? No, these are in southern Indiana in scenic Brown County. Okay. Um, I spent five years getting a Ph.D. many decades ago in the neighboring Monroe County at Indiana University. And Brown County is just beautiful. It looks sort of, it looks like Vermont. It's hilly. There's a lot of artists, um, independent, fierce independent spirit. And um, so it's a perfect place to set a... A, a cozy mystery, so it's village-based, mm-hmm. um, and justice is restored. How, how many books are there so far in the Country Store Mystery Series? Um, the fourth book, Biscuits and Flash Browns, came out in January. Um, the fifth book, Death Over Easy, will be out in July, mm-hmm. uh, right at the end of July, right before we air. And then the sixth book, I've turned in and it's been accepted, it's Strangled Eggs and Ham, and that'll be out in July of 2019, I think. Okay. Well, you've uh, got quite a repertoire there. Um, how long have you been writing Cozy Mysteries? I've been writing novels seriously um, since 2009. But my first book took me sort of uh, three years to write and polish and sell. Mm-hmm. came out in the fall of 2012. And that's a two-book series under the pen name Case Baker, uh, T-A-C-E, um, which I'm not writing anymore because it was with a very small press. Um, so Was I, that the Lauren I, Rousseau Mysteries? Huh? Was that the Lauren Rousseau Mysteries? Yes, that's the Lauren Rousseau Mysteries. She's a contemporary Quaker linguistics professor. Okay. And okay. Those, those are also set in Massachusetts. Okay. Um, 
But then I got a contract with Kensington for the local foods mysteries, which are on an organic farm in Massachusetts. And there's five books in that series. Um, but the first one came out in June of 2013. And those came out come out annually uh, in June. Um, that series, unfortunately, has been discontinued. Um, but there's five, five good books in it. And um, I moved on to some more series, so I'm happy. Good, good. Now, um, how does your, because I, I didn't realize when I was researching you, I, I saw that it was a Quaker midwife series, of course, but um, I didn't stupidly make the connection that um, that would be your background coming into play. H how does it uh, inform your writing? That, that's really fascinating, honestly, Edith. Um, I really enjoy hearing about that. Uh, now, what drew you to mysteries? I've been reading mysteries for decades. Um, for a while, I was reading science fiction, and then I, and I grew up reading mysteries. So my mother had a, our living room was full of books of all kinds, but there were shelves and shelves of Agatha Christie and Earl Stanley Gardner and, you know, um, mysteries. Mm -hmm. Poe and Sherlock Holmes, and, and I grew up reading them. Um, I have an overactive imagination, and I was banned from watching scary movies or TV shows like Twilight Zone. Right. But the bookshelves had no limits, no controls on them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was reading Sherlock Holmes and, and Poe when I was probably nine. And okay, so your story is just like, just like all of us mystery writers, that we grew up reading them, so of course we're drawn to them. I yeah, love that you were reading a poll at nine. That's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a story I tell at author events sometimes. I, my bedroom had a, a solid, plain white ceiling, and I knew that when the light was on. As soon as the light was off, I knew there was a grate in the, in the ceiling, and the speckled band was going to come down and get me. <laughs> After I read this, and I would lie there paralyzed, not able to sleep, you know. Oh, um, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've had a long, long history with an overactive imagination. Um, but, but when I was about 30 years ago, 35, um, you know, I was reading Robert Parker, and I was reading mysteries and some science fiction written by men with male protagonists. And I got really tired of reading mm -hmm. about women's legs and women's upper parts. And, um, and that's when Sarah Paretsky and um, Sue Grafton and Catherine Hall Page and, and Susan Wittig Albert were writing their books. Mm -hmm. Not all cozies, but all female protagonists mm -hmm. by women. And uh. I didn't have to read that stuff anymore. So that's really 
really what I love to read, and that's why I write mysteries with female protagonists. And those women changed the playing field for us. I mean, we yep. really owe them an awful lot. Sarah Paretsky, yep. I was a huge fan. Um, uh, Sue Grafton, uh, I know, so prolific, you know, and uh, yep. just really changed the playing field for us. So so I, I'm with you on that for sure. Um, you mentioned that you were... And, you know, Sarah Paretsky and some of those women were the founding mothers of Sisters in Crime. Of course. And I'm now the president of our New England chapter, which is one of the biggest chapters in Sisters Wow, in congratulations, really proud, yeah. proud to be able to do that. Yeah, I've been a member since 1998 of Sisters in Crime Toronto chapter, and um, uh-huh. I'm proud to be a member, even though I don't get out to meetings the way I would like to and the way I used to. But um, I maintain yeah. that membership and those connections. Um, people who don't write, I don't think they always realize how important it is to us to network. Oh, mm. exactly. To find your tribe. Yeah. You know, to find your people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've made lifelong friends through the Sisters in Crime and through Crime Writers in Canada, and um, I wouldn't give them up for anything. They really yeah. are my yeah. nearest and dearest, you know? Same here. I, I blog with five other New England mystery authors, cozy mystery authors, well, although many of us are branching out. Um, a little bit, the Wicked Cozy authors. And we, we're blog mates, but we're also really good friends. And we have, we meet on, we go away on a retreat every year for, you know, in person for a long weekend. And we, if there's something about the publishing industry we want to talk to somebody about, but we don't want to make it public on Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, we just do an email thread in the background and, yes. and um, share information and gripe and everything. It's a great way to learn what's going on, really, and to ask those questions that you might feel embarrassed to ask publicly. I mean, not that we should feel embarrassed anyway. I mean, the things we don't know are only the things we're willing to learn, you know. So, but uh, but I know what you mean. Sometimes it's better just. To, I know I've got several. Uh, uh, probably about a dozen ladies that I can call any time, or they can call me, and you know something's going on behind the scenes that. Uh, you know, they just want to share or they want to ask about or they, you know, want my yeah, opinion a, or whatever, you know. And so. in some sense, we're all in competition with each other, but I have never met a more supportive, generous group of um, colleagues. Yeah. And I have to be honest, I've never, yeah, I've never personally felt in competition with the other women in yeah. our writers groups. Um. I know that that in a sense we are, but then in another sense we're not because each one of us is so unique. Um, you know, the people who like what I write may not like what another, you know. <laughs> I mean, it just works out that way. And I think that readers pick up on the fact that we do all support each other, and I think they like that. Uh-huh. I think so, too. Yeah. I mean, even this year and last year, both times, um, I, my book was nominated for Best Historical and Agatha Award for the Best Historical Mystery, as was Jesse Crockett, my blogmate, you know, mm-hmm. one of my best writing friends. And, you know, of course I hope I win, but I also hope she wins. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so. mm-hmm. We have a, a group that got together a, um, a number of years ago, in 2013 actually, and started working on anthologies together. And so when any story in the anthology is nominated, we're all so excited because the whole book, of course, is our baby. We all contribute in our own ways and we all work on it. And, you know, so it's it's so exciting when any one story is nominated. Fabulous. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly how I feel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now you um, said that. Did I miss you at Toronto? Were you at VoucherCon? I was not because VoucherCon um, is at a time of year when I just can't get away. Um, yeah. Now they actually this this time when they were in Toronto they actually. Uh, changed the date so that it did not fall on Canadian Thanksgiving for the first time ever. (laughs) But it was too late. I just, uh, by the time I realized that I just couldn't sign up and change the, you know, Uh, one of these days I I will get the voucher con though. I I would love to. Um, I had a wonderful time in Toronto. I went, I went walking around by myself sometimes between sessions and explored and I was really, what did you get uh, to see? Yes. Um, but I also just walked around, and there are all these high rises, and then there's a little 19th century house. Or no yes. House. And I love that that mixture of the old and new. It was, mm-hmm. um, and well, the was downtown. So, and so many young people. It was. I was. I really had a good time. Yeah. The downtown of Toronto is changing so rapidly that many of us don't even recognize it anymore. Um, I'm I'm transplanted as well. My family is originally from the East Coast, and uh, we moved in 75 to Toronto. So I do consider it my home at this point. But um, yeah. it's changing so rapidly that every time we get downtown, it's different. And, I bet. Uh, it's, I mean, building was going on everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My sister is a Canadian. Canadian for several decades. She used to live in Quebec. Um, mm-hmm. she was in Ottawa. Yeah, I used to live in Quebec, in northern Quebec. Um, I, I know that Ottawa is right on the Quebec-Ontario border, so uh, one of our relatives lived in Ottawa most of her life, and we used to go and visit her there. Mm, it's a lovely city. Yeah. Now, you'd said that you were a transplanted Californian. When did you move? Yeah, yeah. My my uh, extended family has a strong Boston connection. So uh, because we're East Coasters, and so there was a lot of family integration back and forth between Boston and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. You know, those those areas. Yeah, were a lot of back and forth. So I always have a strong affinity for Boston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful in imagination. I haven't seen it for so long that God knows what it looks like now. <laughs> well, it's changed, but it has a lot that hasn't changed, too. The yeah. winding, confusing streets and old buildings. Yeah. There's, there's pretty good historic preservation around here. Um, yeah. I've found in this whole area. We, I lived um, in, well, I've lived, all the houses I've lived in in New England, in Massachusetts, have been antique houses except one. And that one was built in 1960, which is not antique. But, mm-hmm. um, and I love living in old houses. Our house, the house we live in now, is actually the house that I that wrote my Quaker midwife lived in mm-hmm. in my book, because it was built in 1880 for the mill workers just down the street. Mm-hmm. The mill was on the street, and um, so I love walking around town and imagining my midwife. Walking well, I could just imagine you must have had a field day in Toronto because. Um, Different neighborhoods in Toronto are just filled with old houses, and the history of building the city is quite something, too. So, oh, um, I have a friend uh, on Facebook. I don't know her personally, but um, 
She writes about the history and development of Toronto. That's what she, that's what her field of expertise is, and um, it's just fascinating, you know. And the the gentrification of the old places. Um, there's a place if you ever come to the city again called uh, the Mill Street Brewery and the Brewery District, and um, you really must get there if you come again. It's just gorgeous. Oh, I would love to, and I we we always go to breweries. <laughs> Um, I, I, I saw the launch party for turning the tide is at a brewery, a new brewery right here in town in a historic building. And when is the launch party taking place? It's April 11th. It's a Wednesday night mm-hmm. um, at, at Brewery Sylveticus, mm-hmm. which, which only opened last fall in, in, a, in an old mill building. Well, your topic is fascinating, turning the tide. I I love to see that from a historical point of view, Um, the suffragette movement, you know. I I, I love reading about it, too. So I think listeners who like to read would love that. Um, And that is the Quaker Midwife series. And the third book is called Turning the Tide, coming out April 7th, I think. April 8th. April 8th. Okay, so look for that. And I have I have Elizabeth Cady Stanton come to town and rally the, the suffragists and uh, mm-hmm. and John Greenleaf Whittier, the poet and abolitionist, the cool was also a Quaker. Uh, he lived here in Amesbury, and he's in every book. Mm-hmm. And so he he stands with the women in their demonstration line after he comes out from voting for a while. How much research do you need to do, and what can you tell our yeah. listeners about the amount of research that goes into historical novels like these? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've researched um, how Quakers talk, um, carriages, um, daily life, like cooking and cleaning and what underwear was like and how they brush their teeth. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. All the too much information um, stuff. <laughs> Okay. So nobody else but me might know that, but I know that it's accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, I have a guide to midwifery from 1870. Um, language, I, I, I always checking, was this word used in 1888? I wanted to use the word gumshoe for detective. Mm-hmm. There's a really thorough um, online site called the Online Etymology Dictionary, which gives you history of words. Okay. And the first, that word wasn't used until like 1905. Okay. So I can't, I can't use gumshoe. Till the dawn I of noir, use, of course, yeah. You know, like, can I use the word employee, or do I need worker? You know, um, so I, I look up language a lot, and of course, I have a PhD in linguistics, so I'm interested in language anyway. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I do a lot of research, but then for each particular book, like Turning the Tide is election, election day. Okay, where did they vote? Mm-hmm. Um, And then I learned that um, the, each 
party got a different colored ballot as they went in. Mm-hmm. And women would make an election cake, this huge cake, and give out a piece to everybody who voted for that party. <laughs> a little bribery. <laughs> And uh, some of the issues that would have been really important in the day, aside or related to the suffragette movement, uh, for example, proper care for women. I mean, in the midwife, um, in the midwife uh, calling, for example, the stats on uh, on um, difficult births must have been quite high. Mm-hmm. I don't like to write those, but they were part of life. Yeah. Um, I haven't had, I haven't yet written a woman who died during childbirth, but um, actually the fourth book, there's a woman who dies of an apparent miscarriage, and it turns out it was a botched abortion. Oh, gee. Which is painful. I yeah. Mean, um, but these things, they happened. That was part of life. That's right. That's and, right. And Mm-hmm. The hospital. And that, that I've learned is partly because all these immigrant women were coming to the cities to work, and then they would get married and stay in the city and have their babies, but they didn't have that network of their mothers and sisters and aunts around to help them. With right. Their so then they started needing an institution to be born in. We're mm-hmm. not needing whatever. It's, it's an evolution. But, but in the late 1880s, certainly most of those people are still homeless. So Rose Carroll is well, it's a, it's a fascinating history, and I think for women in particular, we can't really understand our equality or, in some cases, our lack of equality until we understand the history of what brought us here. And uh, the, the Quakers certainly paid, played a huge role in that evolution for women. So a lot of credit there. Also, for I know that a lot of our listeners will have loved the series Call the Midwife. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Edith, but... Um, Oh, we loved it. We loved it. Our standard yeah. family joke is, I bet you there's going to be a baby born this week. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they do a great job with the births. They I've been, did. I've, I've been at a number of home births myself um, of friends. And, and some years ago, um, when my kids, when my two sons who are now around 30, when they were babe, little little kids, I, was, I had a small organic farm, and I taught childbirth education. I taught childbirth, prepared childbirth classes. And so, as my train, part of my training for that, I had to attend a number of births, and many of them were home births. Um, okay. And so that I think the midwives in the I think the show does a great job with those. Births. I think it does too. We really liked it, and for our listeners who did enjoy Call the Midwife, I think you're going to enjoy the Quaker Midwife Mysteries as well. So please look it up by Edith Maxwell and. Uh, and enjoy, please. Um, Edith, you don't seem like somebody who could possibly have 30-year-old sons. Uh, your voice is so youthful. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a, I have silver hair, believe me. Okay, okay. Uh, so you're in my same category. <laughs> we get to a point where we do know what... They're both coming. They're both going to be here for Easter, so I'll see 
Oh, that's terrific. That's terrific. Well, I'll get you back. I'll let you get back to your Easter planning. And I really want to thank you for coming on the show, Dead to Rights. And um, but before you go, I've got a couple more things to ask you. One is um, we're going to air this in August. So do you have any events coming up in the late summer or early fall that you want to tell our listeners about? Oh, that sounds terrific. Um, and I, I would imagine you'll be going to BoucherCon again, will you? Where is it being held this you year? Know, this year, I'm not going to BoucherCon because um, our niece is getting married in Colorado on September 15th, and my son is getting married in Maryland on September 29th. And for me to go away the week before the, the Colorado trip, yeah, that's quite enough and events. I have to miss. Yeah, for one season, that's quite enough events. And the last yeah. thing I want to ask you, Edith, is do you have any tips for our new authors who may be listening? Oh, for new authors or aspiring authors, my tip is really um, sit in that chair and keep your fingers on the keyboard. I mean, you can't do anything if you don't write the best book you, you can write. Mm -hmm. um, you can't try to sell it. You can't polish it. Can't publish it if you haven't written it. Yeah. So I have completed um, my my turning the tide is my thirteenth novel. I've completed nineteen. That's um, fantastic. And I know by now that the middle is always going to be hard for me. I'm going to get stuck. I'm going to want to give up. I'm going to say this is a terrible book. I don't have a story. I'll never finish it. No one will like it. And I know that if I keep writing, I can finish it, and then I can make it. So really, it's, you know, write the book, right, and then make it the best book you can write. And, and as we talked about earlier, find your tribe. Learn from them. You know, ask them for endorsements. Then they'll ask you for endorsements when they're coming up. Um, so, and, and I just, and, and also enjoy the ride. So if you do have a contract, if you do have a release date, if you do have your debut novel, enjoy it. Because it's never, you're never going to have a first novel again. Yeah, yeah, that's terrific. Stay on the line with us, uh, Edith, for just a second, and I'm going to stop the recording and chat with you for one sec. Okay, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It was really our pleasure. Thank you. My heartfelt thanks to Edith Maxwell for offering such terrific insights to our listeners. And now, please join me for our Readers on the Run segment, featuring a short story by my husband and partner in all things, Alec Carrick titled The Peace of Mind Thief, from World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. Editor's Note We began our carousel of crime with an exploration of secrets, and it's fitting we should end with a tribute to those imps of evil. Alec Carrick shares his exceptional wit and wordcraft as we join him in the bucolic town of Quiet Bay. Secrets Sugar sprinkled on candy, or arsenic mixed with nightshade. Are you in the know, or flying blind? Delicious seductive power, 
or unpredictable happen anytime pain. Who to bring into the inner circle? Who best left excluded? Where to extend the intimacy? An implication of purity that's non-existent. Most secrets aren't. Obscuring the truth, they rarely reveal. Rather, standing in the way of a conclusion. Birthing misconceptions, resentment, and anger are their own twin companions. Still, this was a secret she knew she'd take to her grave. What surprised most was her certainty she could carry through with intent. Her resolve was usually less firm. In this, there were reasons to stay the course. What she had done turned out so well. She'd rolled the dice and won the treasure. No more tempting fate. Cash in her winnings. Accept the good and dare not look back. And never, ever share. Thankfully, she had an advantage, a secret within a secret. She was the only person who knew what she was hoarding. Most of the townspeople of Quiet Bay were upset. The source of the disharmony had been festering for more than a year. At first, it was viewed as a joke, but matters had progressed beyond that stage. Plenty of meetings had been held on the subject. It was a constant topic of conversation. Some were holding their emotions in check, hoping that legal action would solve the matter, although so far that had proven ineffective. A victory in the courts one month led, upon appeal, to a setback the next. The source of the problem was only a five-minute walk out of the centre of the village, along the beachfront. A certain Mr. Gary Willikers was in the process of building an enormous structure on land that most people had taken for granted was public property. Mr. Willikers was one of the community's few celebrities, not because of anything he'd done to earn the acclaim. Instead, his notoriety derived from his profession. He was in the real estate business. True to what he'd seen in his travels to southern environs, he'd adopted a simple marketing ploy, blitz advertising. He'd seen the signs everywhere. Live like a Hilton when you buy with Milton was his favorite. He tweaked the message and plastered his picture everywhere with the caption, Sell with me and say, gee willikers, that was easy. Lately, though, his business had been in a tailspin. He'd pulled some deals judged to be questionable by his neighbors and fellow residents. Through no fault of his own, some properties he'd helped move were now worth a good deal less than they had been a year or two ago. Taking advantage of the downturn in the market, he'd also made a purchase for his own use that violated what some thought was fair play. Exhibit number one, Miss Hook. Shortly before she died in a care facility, Mr. Willikers bought her home down on the lakefront. The word around town was he'd picked it up for a song. Ms. Hook needed money for medical expenses, and he'd stepped in as a sugar daddy with a hidden motive. Or so the story went. The reality was he'd struck a fair bargain, 
what with prices dropping as quickly as they were. The cost of gasoline was going through the roof and vacation homes were falling out of favor given the long drive from major cities. Mr. Willikers had a specific plan in mind for Ms. Hook's land. His real love, and another reason his real estate business was withering, was astronomy. He built a permanent wooden deck over the sand in his new backyard, from which he could gaze at the stars. That alone would have been bad enough. The shoreline had always offered a free and open stroll along its entire length. It was phase two of his project that really set everyone's ire to Jangqing. In keeping with his theme, he was well along in constructing a giant wooden rocket ship on top of his new patio, with a set of stairs ascending to the top. At the summit, he planned a flight deck to serve as his astronomical lookout. In the earliest stages of his projectile project, the ridicule began. The townspeople turned nasty. They were upset over the disruption to their routines. They started to speak of Mr. Willikers as a space alien. Maybe he came from the stars, was the joke. He should go back where he came from, was what a lot of them thought and said. For a certainty, something must be done to stop work on the aberration. Extraordinary measures were justified and needed. Chester Nails was the owner of the local hardware store. He ran an independent operation affiliated with a big corporate chain. The locals weren't pleased with him either. Whenever he was asked what he thought of the monstrosity, his response was always measured. He wasn't sure it was so bad. Maybe it would be a case of unintended consequences. He was aware it might change the town. A giant wooden spaceship on the water's edge could be a tourist attraction. Had anyone thought of that? Not likely. Not among the mental heavyweights who were his staff and customers. Whenever he talked about the possible benefits, he received looks that suggested he might be the one from Saturn. That morning had been a perfect example. Mr. Nails was as loyal to his wife and family as a steak and onions man could be. It didn't make him a monk, though, did it? He had no control over where his wanton imaginings might take him. He wasn't ever going to act on them, but the journey provided most of his daily joy. At least he could cultivate his pleasant imaginings. And where better to plow a furrow than in Herzinger's drugstore, four retail outlets down the street from his own. That's where, on any given day, he'd run into Holly Hoodie, the prettiest girl in town and full-time cashier. Balding, middle-aged, and of average height, Mr. Nails was unaccountably a dandy in one area. He was the proud owner of a dozen pairs of high-end sunglasses. If he tried on enough shades and got the timing just right, Holly would come over and help him with his choice. She'd give her opinion about how he looked. It cracked open an opportunity to converse in other areas. Ah, the sweet delight of talking with an intelligent young woman. 
Mr. Nails would leave the store ecstatic. It would be the highlight of his day. He'd often walk back to his own emporium with a secret smile so big it would have been nice to push it in a shopping cart. He barely acknowledged to himself what he was doing. If he thought it went unnoticed by everyone else, he was sorely mistaken. Small towns hold few secrets. Few and far between were those who weren't aware of his silly infatuation. Holly had a boyfriend, the local leader of the town's questionable element. All such small pawns have a bad boy, someone who finds their own particular niche by being a little wilder than others. Sex appeal was the desired spin-off from being on the outs with the law. Sidney Steeler may have been a renegade, but he was also smart. He knew his charisma was enhanced by dating Holly, the daughter of the local police officer who headed up the local constabulary. Young Mr. Steeler was becoming a problem for Chester Nails. Not only was Holly obviously attracted to Sid, but there were rumors Chester's own son had become a disciple as well. Socially awkward, hero-worshipping teenage boys gravitated to Sid like he was a drumstick. As a consequence, Chester's son had become increasingly disrespectful while also growing careless about keeping up his studies and other duties. One inscrutable teenager at a time, Chester thought, as he turned his mind back to Holly. That morning, during another harmless dalliance, Holly brought up a distasteful subject. She'd been talking to Sid, and it was his opinion that someone should blow up Gary Williker's rocket ship. Chester uncharacteristically went ballistic. That's a ridiculous notion. The man has a right to do with his property whatever he likes. We can't be taking matters into our own hands. He was immediately sorry. The crestfallen look on Holly's face made him feel miserable. He briefly tried to smooth things over, but his efforts fizzled and he soon took his leave. His mood remained out of sorts long into the workday. Chester understood where he'd gone wrong. Sid's leitmotif was the roar of his Kawasaki motorcycle. Chester's was the sound of the garage door opening and closing when he drove off and returned in the family van. He was still distracted at dinner that evening. Even later, when he climbed into bed with his wife, a surprising series of speculations poured out of him. He explained to her, hypothetically of course, how he would deal with the matter of Mr. Williker's pet project. He'd simply do it. It would be risky, maybe a 50-50 proposition, but it was the only way it might work. He'd find an excuse for being out at night on a regular basis, so she would become used to his absences and sleep through them. He added a playful embellishment. He'd claim he was going for a moonlight skinny dip. Then one night he'd sneak down the beach through the water and launch a Molotov cocktail. He'd make sure it was untraceable, something like petrol and a fuse in a large plastic baggie. There were risks. Somebody might spot him, and he certainly didn't want to hurt anyone who might be in the vicinity. 
He'd have to count on luck. But if the cards fell right, it was doable. Mrs. Nails listened to his story. This wasn't her husband as she knew him. She was astonished by his inner resolve. Most of all, she was surprised to learn he was so upset about the matter. It had never surfaced before. When she finally coaxed out the reason for his annoyance, she was impressed by the simplicity of his explanation. Gary Willikers may not have done anything wrong in a strict legal sense, but the truth of the matter is he's stolen the town's peace of mind. One tumultuous week after the town's problem had been fixed, permanently and emphatically, Phoebe Nails, Chester's wife, was sitting in her living room when her teenage son came in after school. She knew Benji was simply checking in before stepping out with his buddies. She'd only see him again the next morning at breakfast. He never seemed to do homework. He was showing up for classes at least as far as she knew, and for that she was grateful. She hadn't heard anything to the contrary from the school's principal, who also performed double duty as Quiet Bay's long-serving mayor. Whenever she saw the village's top authority figure, she was sure to inquire. Benji came in through the back door and, after a brief, violent fridge raid in the kitchen, walked in to say hello to his mother, positioned strategically on his exit route. He'd have been pleasant enough in appearance except for the scowl that now often skewed his countenance. At first, Phoebe assumed her son might be having girl trouble, but she was coming to entertain a different conclusion. She switched to worrying that Benji was disappointed by his parental examples. That wasn't fair. It would have to stop, she decided. Hi, Ben, she said. How was your day? Boring. Same as always, was his uninspiring response. I'm sure it was better than that, she answered cheerily. No, it was really lame. Nothing decent to say about it at all, really, he said, with no enthusiasm. Phoebe was becoming fed up with her son's moods. There was being a teenager, and then there was immersion in the persona of a surly cur. Maybe they were the same thing. Still, this wasn't how she'd imagined her family would turn out. She wasn't willing to lie down and take it. Benji had been such a fun-loving and sparkly child. She had no idea where things had gone wrong. She and her husband often talked about it. He had even less of a clue. Maybe it was TV, or video games, or peer pressure, or something in the local water supply. Maybe he was simply a bad seed. No, his whole generation seemed to be comprised of snarly malcontents. They couldn't all be rotten. That was too easy an answer. Had she and Chester been lax as parents? Possibly. She'd known a much harsher discipline in her own upbringing and had resolved not to impose the same on her kids. Maybe the reality is that children need a firm hand, even if it has other undesirable consequences. As much as it was hard to endure personally, it was Ben's lack of respect for his father that grated her most. She knew, by tone of voice and offhand comment, that Benji thought his dad was a stick in the mud. Ben, come and sit down, she said. I have something important I want to discuss with you. Not now, Mom. 
I have to meet Sid and the guys, and I want to be out of the house before Dad gets home. I'm mystified, Ben. What's so great about Sid? Are you kidding? You know what he did about the rocket pad, right? The whole town was in an uproar, and he came up with the solution. He's a hero. The sheriff doesn't think so, she offered. Benji remained firm in his admiration. Yeah, well, Sid told us guys what he did. He's the man, right? And you don't suppose he's lying, she couldn't help but ask. No way. You adults, Dad, the mayor, the sheriff, you all just sat around talking. You didn't do anything. Sid took action. Phoebe nodded her head. She looked at him with a serious expression. I have a problem with your father I'd like to discuss. That spun his attention in another direction. A problem with Dad, he responded. For the first time in a long while, Benji looked puzzled. He wasn't used to his mother having any issues with Chester. They were a team. They presented a united front when it came to dealing with him and his foibles. In his experience, they didn't have setbacks of their own. He did some quick mental math and figured he could spare a moment to listen to what his mother had to say. He sat next to her on the orchid-patterned couch. It was a plush affair with doilies on the arms, something that would have fit more appropriately in his grandmother's house. He'd once come across the word antimacassar in a book and looked it up in a dictionary. Sticky note fashion, he'd attached its meaning to his brain. It was his proclivity for doing such things that informed him he might be a little smarter than most, as if that would ever get him out of this place. Benji was one of those kids. There are a million of them. He was sure the people he was living with weren't his real parents. He must be adopted. There could be no other explanation. His true lineage was royalty but he'd been separated from the king and queen at birth for some reason having to do with palace intrigue. Someday, an envoy would come and rescue him, but for now he'd have to put up with far less than was his due. Phoebe studied her son and then began to tell him about a possible alternative explanation for what had occurred seven days before with Benji's father as the chief protagonist. First, she made it clear he was never to mention any of this to anyone. Especially, he must never let it slip to Chester that he was aware of what had transpired. Soon, during pauses, she could hear a jaw drop. A short distance away, Adriana Willikers, Gary's spouse, was also reflecting on the events of the past week. It had been a discordant seven days. Alone at her ornate dining room table, she was drinking a second cup of cappuccino. Adriana was a quiet woman who cherished her dignity. Given that her husband was so flamboyant, most people concluded she was mousy. They had it backwards. She could reach down and find enough resolve to startle anybody. Maybe it was her Italian background a heritage of ruling the world, albeit 2,000 years earlier, was coursing through her blood. She'd met Gary at university. His flame of confidence was too often blanketed by a lack of drive. Her personality was kept to a simmer by a strong will that feared a dangerous burn. As a couple, 
Their combined thermostats sometimes swung to one extreme or the other, but most often it was set at just the right temperature. In this most recent instance, burdened by the distress her family was experiencing, she'd lanced the boil. She'd spotted her chance and taken appropriate, if attention-grabbing, action. A week earlier, Gary and their son, Bud, had driven 50 kilometers to the one cinema in the vicinity, located in Springdale, that mecca of urbanity, to see another of the horror movies they liked so much, something about the evil dead. Besides, it was her night to have fun with the ladies. This was a recent departure from her usual reclusive ways. Phoebe Nails, aware of Adriana's increasing isolation on account of her husband's obsession, had invited her into an arts and crafts group that had been surprised to receive a speedy yes. This was the night of her inauguration when she received the loose-knit violet-hued scarf that all the ladies wore around their necks while they were working together on their projects. As the newbie, it was her turn to supply the food. She'd spent the afternoon preparing shells and cream filling according to her mother's impossible-to-botch cannoli recipe. Halfway through the evening, she retired to the kitchen to arrange her culinary contribution on a tray in an appealing arrangement. Henceforth, she'd never be sure to what degree she had actually planned what came next or whether it was simply a matter of the stars coming into fortuitous alignment. Alone in the kitchen, hearing the buzz of conversation in the living room, and knowing the other women would soon be gossiping about her husband's carpentry work, she slipped out of the house. The nails lived five doors east along the beach from her own abode. She walked quickly along the shoreline and on to her rear grounds, the sound of gentle waves washing in and meeting resistance from the ill-placed deck might have been soothing under other circumstances. That afternoon, Gary had told her about his newest outside-the-box idea. He'd purchased an old propane barbecue and was keeping it in the shed. He planned to modify the unit by removing the lid and taking the gas lines out of the casing. He hoped that, if he placed the modified contraption under his pet project and turned it on at night, he could simulate a jet-fired launch. Or maybe spike up the flames for an afterburner effect. This was all becoming too much for her. Her husband was being ostracized by the rest of the community. Bud's answer was to escape into the trouble that was sure to arise from hanging around with Sidney Steeler's gang. Satisfaction of Gary's fantasy was costing them dearly. This latest scheme of his was dangerous to boot. Better to rid the family of the festering sore in a controlled, deliberate manner. She went to the shed, pulled out the barbecue, and rolled it under the looming wooden structure. She stepped into her home briefly to locate a long-stemmed lighter. She also went to a cupboard where she'd been keeping solidified bacon grease from an earlier frying effort in a large can. Afterwards, she realized this did indeed indicate a measure of premeditation. Back outside again, she smeared some of the grease onto the lower superstructure. 
The rest she spread upon the grill of the barbecue. She turned a valve and pulled the trigger on the lighter. Initial small flames almost immediately roared up ominously. She stepped back quickly. The flames were angry. In no time, Gary's pet project began to burn. She wheeled the barbecue back to the shed and sped back to her social gathering. Re-entering the living room with a tray full of goodies, no one appeared to have noticed her slightly extended absence. As for subsequent speculation about who had done the shocking deed that night, Sidney Steeler provided a convenient diversion. To embellish his own villainous image, he'd insisted on stealing the spotlight. Adriana could never admit to her husband what she'd done. It was important for him to believe his ambitions had been thwarted by at least one member of an angry mob. How let down would he feel to discover it was his wife who had perpetrated the crime? Just the same, she knew it was time to make important changes in her life. Mix in with the other members of the community with firmer commitment. The quilting bee was the obvious entry point. She'd already established a beachhead. She was sure their undeclared leader, Phoebe Nails, was a woman of substance. Her fanciful designs stepped outside the norm. Most people were oblivious to their quirkiness. Phoebe's pictures were fraught with subliminal messages. She specialized in barnyard scenes. If one looked carefully, one could see that different species were giving each other come-hither looks. While there was nothing overt taking place, Adriana knew there was a subtext. She was dying to ask Phoebe if her suspicion was correct. But that wasn't the sort of thing one could do cold. There had to be a build-up of familiarity. It was all very intriguing, to say the least. Two weeks had passed since the notorious event, and Phoebe Nails was taking her usual afternoon break from her household chores. Incapable of sitting idly, she was sketching a pattern for another blanket project to go in the spare room. Or maybe she'd sell it at the upcoming church bazaar, as she often did. It was a cozy thought, speculating on how the various outputs from her nimble fingers were warming people all over time, especially since so few of her friends and neighbors seemed aware of what was really captivating about her craftsmanship. As it always did these days, her mind bounced back to a more potent wellspring of interest. What she'd done in telling Benji that fanciful story was far outside her comfort zone. It had required a measure of imagination and even a level of acting skill she'd previously not known she possessed. The look of incredulity on her son's face as the narrative unfolded was worth everything. It was good that he would begin to see things differently. For his own survival, he had to realize the world isn't as straightforward as he might suppose. There were nooks and crannies of truth that one could spend a lifetime spelunking without ever reaching the back of the cave. Look at her. Who would ever figure she'd know the meaning of the word spelunking? She and Benji shared affection for vocabulary. Maybe that's what would eventually convey him from their sleepy stream to a swifter flowing river. He could be an English teacher 
or a reporter somewhere south in one of the large cities. She chuckled about the skinny-dipping reference. What had inspired Chester to add that pinch of spice? It had been years since he'd actually done anything so bold. When they were kids, the chemistry between them had been sufficient to strip away inhibitions. A moonlit, naked romp in refreshing waters had been one of the adventures that bound them together when they started dating. As for her husband's role in taking care of the town's problem, she really had no idea whether he'd set fire to the spaceship or not. Nor did she care. Nonfiction or false, the imagery had apparently ignited a spark under Benji. Both she and Chester were incredulous when he'd descended the stairs for breakfast that morning and said he'd like to spend more time helping out around the store after school and on weekends. He'd grace them with a shy smile. His essence was more assured, as if warmed by an incredible secret. Will wonders never cease, she whispered to herself. Now, if she could just get the goat in her latest barnyard scene to look at that sprightly young cow in a lascivious manner, her day would be complete. It wouldn't do to make the randy intent too obvious, nor the returning leer too welcoming. Barely discernible was her guiding credo. It was the sort of challenge she really enjoyed. Her Mother Earth face glowed. Toward the end of the business day, Gary Willikers came into Chester Nail's hardware store. Unsure how his approach would be received, but driven by innate decency, Chester went up to Gary and said, Too bad about your building project. I thought maybe you had something there. Gary was mildly surprised to be openly addressed on the subject. Yes, well, dreams rarely come true, but I do regret the way things turned out. Chester was puzzled by Gary's calm. You don't seem too upset. Gary gave Chester a cockeyed look. His expression turned reflective. You know what? You're right. I thought I'd be horribly upset. Before there are momentous changes in our lives, we imagine them with all kinds of reservations. Then they happen, and you realize it was the build-up that was so stressful. The aftermath might be anything. It's almost certain not to be what you expect. How do any of us cope with life? What a struggle. I just wanted to do something different. It was the kind of thing my father would have done. He liked grand gestures. But clearly it was upsetting a lot of people. I tried my hardest. Now it's been taken out of my hands. Chester jumped in. In effect, you've been provided with an excuse. You're a wise man, Chester, Gary said. In short, yes. So, what can I help you with today, said the shopkeeper. Well, I want to spend more time with Bud. He says he'd like to go camping with me. Sounds like an excellent idea. What can you show me in the way of equipment? Chester's response to such a question was always near at hand. We have everything you'll ever need to have a great time. Where were you thinking of going? Gary didn't hesitate. No place special in mind. I don't suppose it has to be very far. We're pretty remote right where we are. Savage, one might even say. A grim smile captured his face. Hmm. Very true, Chester chuckled. I just want to find a clearing where Bud and I can set up away from any artificial light. 
Then we can get out the telescope and look at the stars. Yes, I've heard that's a hobby of yours, said Chester. No doubt about it. Gary was warming up to Chester. He'd always thought of him as just another fixture around town. Maybe he'd been hasty in his judgment. And hadn't Adriana spoken highly of feedy nails lately? He'd share some humor with him. Actually, Gary said, I have an ulterior motive. Yes, Chester intuitively picked up that a punchline was coming. He was prepared to smile. Gary rose to the occasion. I want to point out the quadrant of the sky where Bud's grandfather was born. Three weeks after the shocking event that had his tiny community back on a more serene keel, Sheriff Hoodie was on a pedestrian patrol past the shops and cafes along Main Street. He was well aware everyone in town was waiting for an arrest in the mysterious case of the rocket ship fire at the Willikers' place. Okay, maybe he wasn't the smartest man hereabouts, but there were certain things he couldn't do. Before he'd lost his hair, he'd been a good-looking guy. His formidable size made him a local high school sports hero. He'd been grateful for the advantage when he was younger. It helped him woo and win his ex-wife. Their union had produced the extraordinary creature that was on display every day at the local pharmacy. He wasn't at all happy that every self-deluded stud in town circled her like she was a candy bar. That was life. He presumed it would be ever thus, a male-female dynamic that even crossed genders and always set the agenda. Thursday night, three weeks prior, the former Mrs. Hoodie contacted him and asked him to check on their daughter in what had once been their marriage bastion. He generally didn't like going over there, since it reminded him of his reduced circumstances living in a mobile home on the edge of town. But he couldn't ignore his duty when it came to his darling child. He arrived at 29 Shady Lane at 9.30 p.m. and used his old key to let himself in. There was no evidence of Holly in the front rooms. He walked down the hallway that connected to the bedrooms and pushed open her door. Big mistake! There were two figures uncovered and entwined on the bed. The one on top was startled by the movement behind him and looked up in mid-thrust. A naked Sydney Steeler stared into the shocked eyes of Sheriff Hoodie. Fistfuls of crap were about to overload the shredder. Holly, still in the throes of pleasure, was at first oblivious to what was transpiring. Harlan Hoodie's frame shook with rage, but before his anger took wing with harsh words, a call came over his walkie-talkie. All three occupants of the room could hear the distress message. There's a fire at the Willikers' place. You'd better get over there right away, Sheriff. Harlan looked at the pair and knew a great divide had been crossed. Relations with his little girl would never be the same again. He rushed out of the house to do his duty but his thoughts were preoccupied. Worse, in the days that followed, he realized he shared a secret with the devil. Sid was never boastful about his sexual conquest. He did, however, have immunity when it came to talking up his role in the great conflagration. Harlan's hands were tied. He couldn't arrest the individual who was apparently the prime suspect in the case. He was well aware said individual had an ironclad alibi. 
Whenever anyone asked why he hadn't taken legal action against Sid, given the rumors that were circulating, Harlan would say he didn't have enough proof, but he was keeping an eye on the boy. Besides, in his own mind, he was conflicted. Where was the crime? He knew Adriana Willikers was the culprit. She'd burned down her own property, a misdemeanor at best, since she didn't have a fire permit. He'd checked already. He'd deduced Adriana's culpability on account of her carelessness. Fibers from her purple scarf had caught on some railing that escaped the blaze. Being aware of the inner practices of all the social gatherings in his preserve was part of his job description. If he arrested her, he'd only be tearing a family apart, one that was attempting reconciliation. He knew what it was to live through a breakup. Best to be avoided if there were smoldering remnants of affection. For the sake of his community, this was a case that should remain unsolved on the official blotter. The townsfolk had a better sheriff at Harlan Hoodie than they would ever know. What a life, Harlan thought, for the thousandth time that day. He paused in his walk through the beautiful little village where he'd always resided. A lesson from the yoga class he sometimes watched on television surfaced unbidden. Oh well, on the plus side, it's great to breathe deeply and be here in this special space. Harlan was becoming almost new age in his spirituality. That's a joke, he thought. Wasn't it space that got us into this mess in the first place? The end. And that has been The Peace of Mind Thief by Alec Carrick. Thank you so much for joining me in listening to it. If you're a published author and would like to be featured on Dead to Rights, email me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and mention Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll be happy to hear from you, and there are still a couple of slots open for 2018. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. On Twitter, we're listed as at deadtorightspod. Please help us to continue to bring you new and established authors. Podcasters rely heavily on your feedback and support. This is a not-for-profit endeavor, but you can help simply by subscribing absolutely free at your favorite podcast platform. We're available at iTunes or at Google Play. Simply look for Dead to Rights under Podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to share some love. A good rating can really help move our podcast up in the rankings, and allow our authors to reach more new readers. Thanks for doing this. It means a great deal to us here at Dead to Rights and at Carrick Publishing, bringing you outstanding author tips, writing content, and short stories is our genuine goal. Also, don't hesitate to reach out to us anytime. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at DonnaCarrick.com, or on Facebook as Donna Carrick or Carrick Publishing. My Twitter handle is at Donna underscore Carrick or at Carrick Pub. My better half, Alec Carrick, is at alexcarrick.com, and that's Alex with an X, or on Facebook. You can tweet him at Alex underscore Carrick. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick, as is all other story scoring music. You can tweet with Ted at Ted Carrick or follow his YouTube channel, 
Ted Karen Music. Thanks for joining us. Hope to see you next week when we feature Mike Rubin, author of The Cottonwood Curse and Cashed Out. Free, yet it rides. Let it rot.